conversations. Okay, and welcome to another episode of Health Dialogues with me, one of your hosts, Rahul. <laughs> and I'm joined by Davil, the lovely Davil. There's been a Med Conversations takeover. It's gone corporate. Rahul has is, is changed the name. We just think that it played with our target audience a lot better. <laughs> it's market research. So today is hypertension part two. And I know there's been a couple of people out there, my mum, who have been waiting for this podcast uh, solidly, sending me a lot of fan fangirl emails. So part one, I think I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. It is a pathophysiology podcast for hypertension, understanding some of the mechanisms uh, and science behind hypertension. But this podcast is going to be about drugs and their mechanisms. And so I'm going to try and recall you back to what we learned in part one so that we reinforce that. And it's a little unorthodox because we're going we're gonna to talk about drugs and therapies for hypertension and then in the next podcast, we're going to talk about the clinical conditions. But I think hopefully this works the way I want it to work, and it'll help you recall all that pathophysiology, help you understand the drugs, and then we can just sort of fly through all of that in a beautiful clinical podcast that ties it all together. So let's it's get started. Rahul. This is like the best structured teaching you've ever delivered me, I think. Yeah, no, normally it's just a <laughs> rambling mess. Raising the bar. <laughs> I'm an adult now. I'm almost turning 30. <laughs> Uh, so I want to just preface this all by saying one thing that we're going to talk a lot about drugs for hypertension now, but it's always important to consider lifestyle factors in your patients with any cardiovascular disease, but hypertension is no exception. And when we're thinking about lifestyle factors, we think about smoking, alcohol, weight gain, obstructive sleep apnea, and stress. So I really want to harp on those, but eventually sure. you have to stop messing around with that hippie stuff and get down to the good, <laughs> good <chemicals. laughs> definitely if you're like sitting in an oski or something or being asked a question on the water and you should always kind of start with that stuff obviously mm-hmm. but yeah we're going to dive straight into the medications yep so Davo, what are the current first line drugs for hypertension there's three main classes or four main classes that the current guidelines suggest should be first line so you've got your calcium channel blockers, you've got your renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system blockers, otherwise known as your ACE inhibitors and your angiotensin receptor blockers, your ARBs. And you've got your thiazide or your thiazide type diuretics as well. So that's the three. That's right. And these drugs are the first line recommendations because they have hard data to show that they reduce the risk of cardiovascular events. And they also have additive effects in combination. So it's easy to sort of dance across these and get good blood pressure control in most people with minimal side effects. I think that's an important point there to make as well about hypertension, that this is one of those things in medicine we actually prefer using combination therapy. We like using small doses of multiple drugs rather than one drug at very high doses. And that stands in contrast to, you know, something like epilepsy where we do the opposite thing. Um, But in hypertension, it seems to work pretty well. Yep. So, you know, you kind of target multiple mechanisms and by doing that, you shut down the whole process in multiple sites. It's pretty effective. Yeah, exactly. So some, you know, we've spoken about the first line drugs. There are some old um, favorites that have kind of fallen out of favor these days and beta blockers are probably one of them. So um, they're good for heart failure, good for angina, but they don't have as much stroke protection in hypertension. They probably increase a bit of diabetes and they're probably not as good for blood pressure reduction. So we're going to talk about that in the second line part. And then also going to be talking about in the second line part some mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, which really should be grouped in the renin angiotensin aldosterone blockade uh, portion, but they're not part of the first line drugs. They're really add on drugs. So before I get into too much of the itty nitty 
gritty detail. Let's look at an MCQ double. And we're going to touch on alpha blockers as well, aren't we? Yeah, we will. I was going to keep that a secret. Ruin the surprise. (laughs) All right, MCQ, put me on the spot. Here we go. Yeah, I made these fairly easy for you. See, I'm kind. I'm kind. (laughs) Which of the following explains the mechanism by which calcium channel blockers lower blood pressure? Do they, A, cause peripheral vasodilation, which increases cross-sectional area, which lowers resistance? Do they, B, lower the blood volume and thus lower cardiac output? C, decrease sympathetic output and thus cause peripheral vasodilation and lowered resistance? Or D, cause inhibition of carotid baroreceptors, which causes reflex vasodilation? I'm going to have to lock in answer A, which was peripheral vasodilation increases cross-sectional area which lowers resistance very good very good so if we go back to our sort of understanding of resistance in the body so pressure is equal to flow times resistance which is sort of a a derivation of ohm's law applied to hydrodynamics i guess Um, and so what that means is blood pressure is equal to flow which is cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance now systemic vascular resistance is sort of a a measure of how hard it is to get things across a given tube or, you know, across a given surface. And uh, the things that make that uh, higher, uh, or the most important thing that makes that higher, is the cross-sectional area. So if you cut the tube in half, what's the area? Um, So when you vasodilate, you increase that area. When you constrict, you decrease that area. And remember, that's the inverse power of four of the cross-sectional area. Resistance is the inverse power of four of cross-sectional area. So it really has a huge effect when you change a cross-sectional area on your resistance. Okay, so we're going to start. We're going to have another MCQ here. Um, which of the following is the most efficacious calcium channel blocker for hypertension? Is it A. Verapamil, B. Diltiazem, C. Amlodipine, or D. Cetirizine? So I would have to go with the hydrodiripine. Is that how you say that? That was uh, one of the answers. Trying to be too fancy. Amlodipine <laughs> is what I want. <laughs> Amlodipine is correct. So verapamil diltiazem, we can talk about in a second, but they're centrally acting non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. And cetirizine is not a calcium channel blocker. So calcium channel blockers. Who could have thought that we'd be talking about this now? Mm. The mechanism of action, Davo. How do calcium channel blockers work? So as it's all in the name, so calcium ch- channel blockers block the calcium channel. That's how they work, Rahul. Easy, smooth, simple. So they block <laughs> voltage-gated L-type calcium channels, of course. Um, so these are found in myocytes, and in this situation, we're really concerned about their role in smooth muscle cells. By blocking L-type calcium channels, you stop the release of calcium, which sort of uh, creates sustained contraction in muscle cells. So you can imagine that by doing that, the smooth muscle cells found in the walls of all of your blood vessels no longer contract, and so they dilate. And tying it back and recalling to the first podcast, how does this work on the resistance component of hypertension, Davil? We touched on it just before. Yeah, so as you were saying, that uh, pressure is flow times resistance, and if you reduce that resistance by increasing the cross-sectional area, you will therefore reduce the pressure. Beautiful. That's right. And so calcium channel blockers are divided into dihydropyridines and non-dihydropyridines. And that used to always sort of intimidate me when I was in medical school. There's actually quite an easy secret behind it. So some of you might be familiar with some calcium channel blockers, such as amlodipine, philodipine, verapamil, and diltiazem. And the secret is 
that a dihydropyridine amlodipine, uh, dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker is anything that ends in en, which makes sense because dihydropyridine ends in en and amlodipine ends in en. So the non-dihydropyridines then, Davor, what would they be? There's two of them. So verapamil and diltiazem. So cool. they're the more kind of centrally acting drugs, right? That's right, exactly. So I was going to come to that. Like, why would we care about this useless label of dihydropyridine and non-dihydropyridine? Because the non-dihydropyridines are more centrally acting and the dihydropyridines are more peripherally acting. That is to say, they work on the blood vessels, not the heart as much. Mm -hmm. So that's always mm -hmm. a bit of crosstalk. So what are the most potent calcium channel blockers in order from top to bottom, Davil? So you've basically got all the dihydropyridines, so things like amlodipine, nifedipine, etc., uh, that's number one. They're the kings, and then number two is diltiazem, which is has more is more centrally acting than the dihydropyridines, but more peripherally acting than number three, which is verapamil. That's right. So dihydropyridines, then diltiazem, then verapamil. Okay. So the pros of calcium channel blockers is that using a calcium channel blocker, particularly a dihydropyridine, is usually pretty safe and easy. Usually a daily dosing. They don't have many side effects, and we're pretty well tolerated. They're also the hypertensive effect of calcium channel blockers are not impaired by the use of NSAIDs or a high salt intake. And what other drugs might be impaired or affected by doing those things, Davo? So you've got your ACE inhibitors and your angiotensin receptor blockers. Yeah, and diuretics. also your diuretics. That's right. So you know you end up in problems, and we'll talk about this later. But you end up in problems with renal function, electrolytes going all over the place. Um, so calcium channel blockers don't have that problem. They're also, and this will be a theme that comes up later, they combine extremely well with ACE inhibitors for very effective prevention of end organ damage due to hypertension. So there's a trial called the Accomplished Trial that looked at different combinations, and the combination of an ACE inhibitor plus amlodipine was super effective at, um, at reducing uh, endpoints in hypertension. So, and that comes back to the point you were making before, that combination therapies are particularly good in hypertension, and, and you should have a low threshold to put someone on a second anti-hypertensive anti drug. That's right, that's right. Now there are some cons to calcium channel blockers. Davo, do you want to run us through some of what they might be? So they don't offer renal protection. So the ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers, they're really good at preserving renal function, particularly in people with diabetes and who've got microalbuminuria, and you don't get that with a calcium channel blocker. It's just very kind of peripheral. Then you've got your non-dihydropyridines. They, they cause lots of problems, so they're not that strong and they can cause heart failure and can cause um, HIV, um, AV block. So just remembering that's verapamil and diltiazem. So so they can really worsen heart failure. So if you have someone with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, it is pretty much an absolute contraindication to put them on one of those drugs. The reason being is that heart failure is, amongst other things, a disease of calcium handling. So in the heart, you know, without getting into too much, you have a whole bunch of um, processes that release calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum uh, and cause sustained contraction of the muscle uh, and a forceful contraction. And in heart failure, you get dysregulation of that process. And when you give someone a calcium channel blocker, you make that a lot worse. Uh, you can also mm. induce AV block in them as well. Interesting. So, oh, that's so, a good explanation of why that is. Yeah. And lastly, uh, calcium channel blockers do have some side effects. Uh, Ankle edema can happen with the dihydropyridines. So, and it's, you know, Davo, you were saying that you've seen this a fair bit in your experience? Yeah, and I see it all the time. It's really common um, that we'll start someone 
on, uh, you know, amlodipine is a typical one I like to use, five milligrams of amlodipine, and you see them in clinic and they've got really swollen ankles and it's a major issue for them. But that's actually pretty easy to fix if you just uh, whack on a bit of a, a diuretic like thiazide or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, lurconidipine is said to have less peripheral edema um, associated with it, so I do right. use lurconidipine here and there. But, it, you know, peripheral edema in elderly people is one of those things that often bothers them a lot. But as soon as they mention it to a clinician, a clinician kind of goes, ah, whatever, and moves on. Um, but they'll often, even <laughs> you ask them... That doesn't mean they, you shouldn't care about it, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I think it, it does bother people a lot to have their legs swollen all the time. Hmm. Okay, another MCQ. Frederick von Willebrand, a mustachioed competitive hot air ballooner, returns to your clinic after you recently prescribed him some ramipril for hypertension. He says that since taking to the lofty heights of competition air ballooning, he develops what he thinks is a recurrence of his childhood asthma. And he thinks that might be because he's been smoking a little more tobacco through his lion head pipe. He had some <laughs> recent fine tobacco acquisitions whilst he was hot air ballooning over the fields of Nicaragua. But what is the most likely cause of Frederick's cough and why does it happen? Is it that fine Nicaraguan tobacco, Davo? I don't know why Frederick's come to see you. He already knows what's wrong with him. He needs to put down his lion head pipe. Use <laughs> a filter like everyone else. <laughs> so, um, given that Darvel's refusing to answer the question posed, to him, uh, <laughs> I can't answer the question. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, are we talking of... about tobacco over the next? <laughs> the next <laughs> yeah, that's the next twenty treatment. minutes of the podcast. <laughs> so Frederick's cough is caused by the ramipril and we're going to talk about that, why that happens now so ramipril is an ACE inhibitor and ACE inhibitors are great drugs they block the conversion of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2 by the very conveniently named angiotensin converting enzyme which is found in the lungs how all much worse would this be if it was all eponymous if it was like Thank neurology to the people yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to the people that just named it what it is it's so sensible so angiotensin 2, that thing that the uh, conversion of which towards, that was nicely phrased, is being blocked by ACE inhibitors, uh, causes vasoconstriction, salt retention, and increased sympathetic activity, which causes um, you know, a whole host of other effects that increase your blood pressure. Mm-hmm. They do this by binding to angiotensin 1 receptors. Now that's a little confusing there, that angiotensin 2 binds to angiotensin 1 receptors as well as angiotensin mm. 2 receptors. But there are two receptors, mm-hmm. and AT1 is the most important one. So in terms of the whole process, how do you actually arrive at this angiotensin 2 that causes all these negative effects by binding to AT1, double? Let's get, take us, let's back to the start. <laughs> so you start with angiotensin 1. Uh, even before that. Oh, you get, yeah, that's right, you get angiotensinogen. And uh, angiotensinogen is broken down to angiotensin 1 by renin. And then angiotensin 1 uh, is turned into angiotensin 2 by the angiotensin-converting enzyme, and that happens in the lungs. So ACE is the thing that ACE inhibitors inhibit. That's uh, the, the, the thing with ACE, it also breaks down bradykinin, uh, which is a vasodilator. And bradykinin does a couple of things. It causes a cough. Um, and it also causes angioedema. Yeah, so it's involved in the angioedema pathway, which angioedema is really uh, a problem of excessive vasodilation in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but bradykinin also triggers nociceptive, so sort of like pain or sensory receptors in your lungs, which cause you to cough. 
So that's interesting, and that's probably why Frederick von Willebrand was coughing. Or maybe it was the tobacco. Who knows? So <laughs> what's some examples of ACE inhibitors, Double? So anything that ends in pril. So you've got your ramipril, your perindopril, which is my favorite, lisinopril, or enalapril. Yep, and all of them are reasonably comparable. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't get too into the nitty-gritty. Some cardiologists like to favor one or the other, but I think they're all reasonably comparable. Um, mm-hmm. And the pros of ACE inhibitors, Darvel? So they're very easy to dose, and they've got relatively few side effects, which is good. And as we were discussing before, they combine really well with other drugs, particularly you know your amlodipines, your calcium channel blockers. And they're also, as we kind of alluded to earlier, they're they're good for patients with heart failure and patients with renal disease with proteinuria. So there's good data now that ACE inhibitors can actually increase survival in those two groups of patients. So if, you've, if your patient has one of those conditions and they've got hypertension, ACE inhibitors are a really great drug to start them on. That's right. They have a lot of flow-on effects, which is nice. Um, but there are some cons. There's always a dark side. So as we said, 10% of people uh, on ACE inhibitors can develop a dry cough due to bradykinin. And that can lead to them stopping therapies and not even coming back to you, just stopping it and saying, well, I didn't like this. And remember that hypertension is often a silent, silent disease. In fact, mostly a silent disease. And so they don't have symptoms. You've given them a drug, which maybe makes them feel a bit dizzy and they're coughing. And they'll just stop it and keep going about their lives because they're completely asymptomatic until they come back with a stroke. Which is the problem with hypertension and cholesterol and diabetes in general. A lot of these drugs have side effects. You make people feel worse than they did before. And... That's where education is just absolutely critical so that they really understand kind of what's on the line here. That's right, yeah. So ACE inhibitors are also difficult to use in people with severe kidney disease. And can you explain why that is, Dove? So it's because they they cause efferent arterial dilation, uh, which, which means that there isn't as much filtration going on in each of those glomeruli. Yeah. And, uh, so and that, just to touch that on that a little bit more. Yeah. So when you, you've got in your glomerulus, which is the basic filtering unit of the kidney, which leads mm-hmm. into the nephron, it's a little tuft of capillaries. You mm-hmm. have an efferent arteriole that goes away from the tuft and an afferent arteriole that comes in. Now, normally, well, I remember that, by the way, is alphabetical order. So A goes in, E goes out. That's interesting because you know how I remember it. I remember it like the nervous system. So afferent nerves feed into the brain and efferent nerves feed out. It's interesting that I remember it that way and you don't. Um, But anyway, so angiotensin normally causes constriction of the efferent arteriole, the one that leaves. Now, when you Mm. constrict something that's leaving, it makes everything pull inside the glomerulus because it can't get out. The doorway's smaller. And that increases your filtration pressure, which is actually good for your GFR. So when Mm. you remove that and all the blood just flows away and your filtration pressure drops, your GFR goes off. And that's normal. Mm. But it also causes hyperkalemia, another thing associated with renal disease, so high potassium. And that's because you get uh, aldosterone blockade as part of this whole renin-angiotensin flow-on blockade. And uh, when you block the uh, aldosterone, you end up increasing potassium because aldosterone swaps sodium in the nephron for potassium from the serum. And when you block that, you're now no longer swapping that potassium from the serum into the nephron. And so you're and when you're saying aldosterone is being blocked, it's more that it's less of it is being produced, right? That's right. Yeah, sorry. It's not being blocked directly. It's less of it's being produced by inhibition of this whole system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's and that's sort of the context there. But I will say that with an ACE inhibitor, you can usually tolerate you know up to a 30% increase in creatinine before you have to say, all right, we can't do this. Um, this is too much. 
Yeah, and so, there's some people that say, or you were telling me that in heart failure, that if the creatinine doesn't go up, it, it, it doesn't work as well. Yeah, so this was looked at. The people in, um, so this is sort of a bit of a side branch. Remember, we're talking about hypertension here, but in people with heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction, where ACE inhibitors were the first drug we had that was very effective, uh, there was they noticed, everyone noticed that these kidneys were going off with ACE inhibitors. And so someone did a sub-analysis and said, well, maybe actually you need to have that as a marker of effect. And it was demonstrated that um, by actually having a small bump in your creatinine, you probably got better outcomes with your heart failure. And that's why cardiologists and nephrologists are always a little bit at war because we do better when we screw over the kidneys a little bit more. <laughs> they're, they're caught in an intimate dance. But Which yeah. organ is more important at the end of the day? Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Yeah, but anyway, go on. <laughs> so ACE inhibitors are also contraindicated in pregnancy. Um, so in the first trimester, the use of an ACE inhibitor can cause fetal agenesis, so very severe um, abnormalities, teratogenic abnormalities, and so difficult in patients who are p- looking to get pregnant. Um, and and well, they- the, thing to, the thing to remember, I think, with any drug that causes really bad things in pregnancy, and, and this is a principle I know from epilepsy, is that you really shouldn't prescribe it to young women. Yeah. Because That's you true. don't know when they're going to get pregnant. Another right. nice little rule about sort of teratogenicity is that very often, there are exceptions to this, but very often things occur worse in the first trimester because that's exactly. when the embryo is still developing and not really resistant to these sorts of things. Which is when people don't know that they're pregnant, so you're not going to be able to take them off the drug. So just don't don't put young women on ACE inhibitors. Yep, that's a good call. So lastly, with ACE inhibitors, the cons, um, there's a very small risk of angioedema. And why might that be angioedema being swelling, so anaphylactic type swelling of the lips, throat, tongue? Why might that Mm. be, Darvel? Well, as we said before, that ACE inhibitors, or ACE rather, also breaks down bradykinin. So when you inhibit that with an ACE inhibitor, there's more bradykinin in the system. And as as you said, bradykinin is an important part of, uh, of angioedema kind of mediates that so you're more likely to get angioedema that's right cool and angioedema is we should say is a quite a high risk thing to happen yeah yeah it can it can cause respiratory arrest so it's a it's a high high risk thing that uh, you need to educate your patients about and make sure that they go straight to the emergency department if they develop kind of a swollen tongue or swollen lips or anything like that Mm mm-hmm so we're going to move on to a related drug now. That was ACE inhibitors. We're going to talk about angiotensin receptor blockers. So mechanism of action. These work downstream from ACE inhibitors. So remember, ACE inhibitors are stopping the production of angiotensin 2. But these actually block the binding of angiotensin 2 to the AT1 receptors. And AT1 receptors are mostly responsible for the badness produced by angiotensin 2. There's also AT2 receptors, but they're a bit more obscure. They're evolved involved in cellular apoptosis and I wouldn't worry about that sure there's AT3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 no no there were shall be <laughs> <laughs> all we um, care about is AT1 yeah it's all about that AT1 baby um, so they angiotensin receptor blockers block that AT1 and they don't cause an increase in bradykinin unlike ACE inhibitors because they're not blocking ACE the enzyme they're blocking the binding of angiotensin 2 to angiotensin 1 receptors it's less dirty yeah, and so just going back to how that works, angiotensin 2 is that workhorse that causes vasoconstriction, salt retention, and increased sympathetic activity. And so by blocking that, you're blocking those hypertensive effects. Mm-hmm. So what's an example of an angiotensin receptor blocker, Darvel? 
So anything that ends in Satan is an ab. Mm. So that's things like Kandasatan, Telmasatan, Urbasatan. Mm. Maybe it sounds a bit like Satan, Saab, Tan. I don't know. Does that help you? Hopefully. No. Okay. I think it's one of those ones that I remember. Yeah, yeah, I think. Well, it's one of the most commonly seen drugs. So it's, uh, yeah, you mm-hmm. get there in the end. So the pros of ARBs, Davor, what are the pros? So they're very similar to ACE inhibitors. And as far as I know, the data we've got shows that they work just as well, which is awesome. And they work just as well in those groups that we talked about before. So renal patients with some proteinuria and heart failure patients. That's right. They also... And then, and yes. You also don't get those kind of nasty bradykinin-induced side effects of cough and, and the risk of angioedema. Yep. And downsides-wise... Again, they can cause an increase in the creatinine and difficulty in renal failure and cause hyperkalemia. So you do need to watch out for those things. But you might ask, why might some people push for an ARB over an ACE inhibitor? Or why might they push for an ACE inhibitor over an ARB? Do you know the answer to that, Davo? So this is an MCQ, but yeah, as uh, I didn't get all the options, but I think I can figure it out <laughs> anyway. <laughs> There's uh, less risk of cough. Um, causing medication cessation. So that's a, that's a major reason. Yeah. So I think one thing to touch on here, so so, so just to go back, with an ARB, there's less risk of cough. And so there's less going to be less people who suddenly stop their medication. And so a lot of people are now pushing to say ARB should be first line. So why might ACE inhibitors still be used first line? Well, they were discovered first and a lot of the outcomes data was done with ACE inhibitors. And some of the clinical trials purists out there will tell you that, you know, we don't know for sure that ARBs are as good as ACE inhibitors. But in my mind, I've pretty much moved over to using ARBs in most people instead of an ACE now, inhibitor. They're all off-patient as well now. They're, yeah. they're not any more expensive, I don't think. That was probably another reason back in the day that when they were, ARBs were first coming out, they were still on patent and so they were a bit more expensive. Now, one question someone out there might add ask in fact it was asked by clinical trialists is well what happens if you use them both and there was an idea back in the day that this was particularly in heart failure and it was examined in the charm added trial there was an idea that well maybe there's some angiotensin escape and there's still activation of at1 receptors even when you block ace and you stop the production of angiotensin 2 and so they did these trials and the charm added trials and essentially you just got way more side effects without any benefit so a lot of renal failure a bit of um a uh, bit of angioedema, and so you'd never use an ARB and an ACE together. It's one or the other. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's good to, good, to, good to point out. All right. So another MCQ. Which thiazide diuretic should be your first choice for hypertension and why? Hydrochlorothiazide, because it is cheap and effective. Chlorthalidone, because it has outcomes data and more efficacy in controlling blood pressure. Dithiazide because it has positive effects on calcium channel levels or calcium levels, or indapamide because the indapamide rep bought Rahul lunch two weeks ago. So, I, as far as I know, I could be wrong here, uh, and I think you might tell me that I'm wrong later. All the, the lunch thiazide like diuretics are pretty much the same, so I might as well, you know, do you a solid and and go for indapamide. Yeah, so wrong, wrong. Uh, Indapamide is not an unreasonable suggestion, but chlorthalidone has outcomes data. It was a trial called the All-Hat trial and much more efficacy in controlling blood pressure. So this might confuse a lot of you because what you see is everyone's using hydrochlorothiazide out there. You know, how many people are on a HCT or HCT combination drug? Barely heard of chlorthalidone. I think if you ask me, is chlorthalidone 
a diuretic or an antipsychotic, I might have picked antipsychotic. (laughs) (laughs) It does sound like an antipsychotic. Yeah, I mean, it's disappointing. I mean, here's the thing. I'd say in cardiology, I don't see many people on thiazides in general, but we should be using chlorthalidone as much as possible. And, And actually, thiazides are really good blood pressure drugs. And the reason is that chlorthalidone has a lot more efficacy data. In fact, hydrochlorothiazide doesn't have efficacy data, so it's not reducing cardiovascular outcomes as much as chlorthalidone. And that's probably because it's much less effective in lowering blood pressure. So here's the thing. People get lulled into using hydrochlorothiazide because it does reduce daytime blood pressure. But it actually has very little effect on nocturnal blood pressure. And nocturnal blood pressure is the biggest risk factor for stroke. So the the effects of hydrochlorothiazide sort of wear off into the night, whereas chlorthalidone sticks around. Is that, so do you see cardiologists using chlorthalidone? Uh, yeah, we use it occasionally. When when I'm really, you know, I had resistant hypertension patients, I'll be throwing on a bit of chlorthalidone. Right. Otherwise, to so, be honest, I probably go, I mean, I change it for patients, but uh, an ARB, a calcium channel blocker, I'm pretty quick to move to spironolactone, and we'll talk a bit more about that later. But yeah, I'd say thiazides, you're looking at sort of third or fourth, fifth line for me. Good to know. Good to know. But that's not where they should. I mean, they really should be one of the first three um, by the yeah, guidelines. Yeah, yeah, that's just yeah. the way I do things. Um, so thiazides, some of the oldest um, drugs, 1950s, oldest antihypertensive drugs, and they're really effective, and they can also be used effectively in combination. So really good with ACE inhibitors, um, really good with... Um, uh, calcium channel blockers, so, you know, easy to add on. They work, Davor, by doing what? You're throwing me these hardball questions. <laughs> so they block the sodium chloride co-transporter in the distal convoluted tubule, and that prevents the normal reabsorption of sodium. So you're basically peeing out more sodium than you would otherwise. And as we know, water usually follows salt; it follows sodium, and so you're peeing out more water. And that that decreases your overall circulating volume, which is a kind of a dirty way of reducing your blood pressure. That is 100% correct. And so I just want to quickly touch on renal physiology again for those of you who may have forgotten or have never learned it. So mm-hmm. sodium is pushed out really heavily by your um, by your glomerulus. Remember that filtration unit at the start of the nephron, and you end up with this big what's called a filtered load of sodium. So there's all the sodium that goes through. But then your nephron is slowly pulling this sodium back into the circulation because it needs it uh, at various mm-hmm. different points in time. And one of and a lot of our diuretics interact with this. So loop diuretics interact with it or stop this at the loop of Henley. The thiazide-like diuretics block it in the distal convoluted tubule, which is just after the loop of Henley. And um, so they block the reabsorption of sodium and then that pushes it down so you get this big filtered load of sodium. Uh, and... Remember, by getting rid of sodium, we get rid of water, we get rid of volume, we decrease our cardiac output, we lower our blood pressure because you pressure is equal to cardiac output times resistance. Beautiful. So the three main examples of thiazide diuretics I want to harp on are hydrochlorothiazide, which is a true thiazide diuretic, endapamide, which is a thiazide-like diuretic, and chlorthalidone, which is a thiazide-like diuretic. Don't worry about the fact that they're thiazide-like. It's really just a chemical structure thing and has nothing of any importance aside from the fact that you should use chlorthalidone if there's one thing i want people to take from this it's to always use chlorthalidone and um you know your one thing from this podcast that's the one (laughs) thing (laughs) who really bought me lunch it wasn't the adapt my dread uh rep um i think 
look, you're gonna and you're gonna suggest this to a consultant or someone, a registrar, and they're gonna say, "What? What are you talking about?" Because it's maybe not common knowledge, but you know, this has very good evidence behind it. Bit of a flex. Yeah, it's a nice flex. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think we spoke a bit about HCT only working during the daytime. Let's talk about pros of thiazide stubble. So they're cheap and pretty effective. I've been using them for seventy years, and like all hypertension drugs, they combine well with other drugs. Okay, and the cons of thiazides, and this does tie to chlorothaladone, is metabolic mischief. So they cause basically derangement of all your electrolytes. So hypokalemia, hyponatremia, hypomagnesemia. So why might they cause hypokalemia? Well, you're filtering sodium, which is floating down then. All this sodium stays in your nephron and goes down more distally in the nephron to the collecting duct where there's a little fella called aldosterone. And aldosterone substitutes potassium for sodium. And when it sees a whole bunch of sodium sitting there in the collecting duct, it goes whippy and starts to swap all of the potassium for the sodium. And so you lose your potassium, you get hypokalemia. It also causes hyponatremia and hypomagnesemia by similar mechanisms. It's just floating all of these electrolytes down out into your urine. Thiazides also worsen your worsen diabetes control. Uh, and this has to do with sort of glucose reabsorption and, and the change in the, um, uh, the osmotic balance in the kidney as well. But yeah, it's another example of metabolic mischief caused by the thiazide diuretic, the worst glucose tolerance. I two things. Mm-hmm. One, I would pay a lot of money to have someone animate you describing uh, renal physiology. I think that was <laughs> <laughs> well done, very engaging. I probably would have become a nephrologist if I'd seen something like that in med school. And two, the main thing I know about thiazides and this metabolic mischief you speak of is that they cause really bad hyponatremia. Mm, yeah. Whenever there's an old person and they come in with a sodium of like 125, like the very first thing I do is like thumb down the medication list and wait until I find the indapamide or the HCT or I've never seen chlorothaladone, but I'm you sure. You probably wouldn't have realized that. You probably have. Yeah. Well, like, that's well, just an antipsychotic. It's an antipsychotic. <laughs> I should do something about that, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> seems unnecessary. This guy seems very yeah. mentally stable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So you know, metabolic mischief is your problem with thiazides, and and particularly hyponatremia. Yeah. So hyponatremia is an interesting one. It's really the elderly patients who suffer from it. So there's beautiful curves showing that your incidence of thiazide-related hyponatremia is almost zero until you hit this sweet spot of about seventy, and then it rockets up, um, and they it's really a significant problem. Um, so so you've got to make use of that when you're young. You should just be taking it all the time. slam it down now, yeah. Mm. The Now, to tie this all back in a physician-like manner, uh, if we think about thiazides causing increased urinary frequency and hyponatremia, which is a um, which causes confusion, it really can increase falls, and thiazides are a big cause <laughs> of falls in the elderly. So watch out for that. Mm-mm. All right, so let's move to another MCQ. Aloysius, a 34-year-old man with a penchant for pheasant hunting, appears in your clinic. He has his pheasant hunting rifle slung over his chest, and whilst admiring the ivory inlays on the rifle strap, you notice his significant gynecomastia. He tells you he's been trouble aiming and shooting his rifle since his breast tissue has grown larger and larger. Which of the following hypertension drugs most likely caused Aloysius' problems? 1. A plerinone. 2. A tenolol. Three, spironolactone, or four, pure uncut Colombian cocaine served at the pheasant hunting club. 
Well, I would say the root of his problems was capitalism. <laughs> well, that's that was the correct answer. <laughs> that's what led him to. <laughs> that's what led him to have so much income that he started abusing cocaine, which caused the hypertension, which meant that he then had to be on spironolactone, which gave him the gynecomastia. That's correct. So we've got if a young man. He had so man. much money. I don't know why he didn't splash out a bit more and get the plerinone, pl- yeah. which doesn't cause gynecomastia. So we've got a young man who ends up with gynecomastia. This, this scenario is quite unrealistic, actually, now that I think about it, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. That, this is the, I can't believe I've done this. A lot of holes in it. <laughs> um, so, young person, gynecomastia, sex hormone side effects. Always think spironolactone. It causes gynecomastia in males as well as erectile dysfunction. And a plerinone, as Davor said, does not. So what are these drugs that I'm just talking about? Well, they're all both aldosterone antagonists. And these are exactly what they say. They block aldosterone, and they're really highly effective add-on drugs for hypertension, especially resistant hypertension for someone who's failed those first three. Oh, we should just quickly touch on that. What were the first three first-line drugs which we've sort of discussed, Davor? Uh, yeah, so we said ACE inhibitors slash ARBs, calcium channel blockers, and thiazide like diuretics. That's right. Okay, so um, so now we're getting into sort of the add-ons, and that's aldosterone antagonists, so spiro and eplerinone. Mm-hmm. And like I said, they block aldosterone, and the way that works is there's this little sodium channel in the collecting duct of the nephron, so right at the end, and it's called the epithelial sodium channel. Uh, and that absorbs sodium in exchange for potassium and hydrogen. We touched on this a little bit before. It's Mm. activated by aldosterone, and thus an aldosterone antagonist inhibits this. And so it prevents the reabsorption of sodium, and it preserves all the potassium in the serum. And so how does that lead to another name for sort of aldosterone antagonists or this class of drugs, Double? So they're called potassium-sparing diuretics. That's right. So they're, they're keeping all the potassium and they're keeping all the sodium in the nephron, which is getting peed out. And again, we're coming back to that decreasing blood volume, decreasing cardiac output, and thus decreasing blood pressure. Now, aldosterone is an interesting hormone in hypertension. It's really important. And it's really important, particularly in patients who have something called renal artery stenosis. And that's because we touched on this in the first podcast. It's because those patients perceive a reduced amount of blood flow getting to their kidney. And as a response to that, the kidney goes, oh, that we must have been bitten by a tiger, we must be hemorrhaging everywhere, let's reabsorb as much salt as possible. But actually in renal artery stenosis, what's happening is they just have a blockage or a narrowing in their renal arteries, which is causing that lack of perfusion to the kidneys, which is triggering the wrong thing. But yeah, the kidneys go along and secrete all this uh, renin and aldosterone, which then really increase salt resor- uh, absorption and increase their blood pressure. So it's really effective in those people. It's also really effective in another group called primary hyperaldosteronism. And that makes sense. Con syndrome. Con syndrome. That's just where your adrenal gland has a little tumor, a little uh, non-benign tumor that functions and secretes aldosterone. And uh, that causes really high blood pressure. So um, it's really effective in those people. And we'll talk a bit about more of that in a second. But what are the two examples of aldosterone antagonist, Davol? So you've got spironolactone, which is the OG, the mm-hmm. one we all know know well. And then you've got a plerinone, which came a little bit later and has the main selling point of not causing gynecomastia. That's right. Yep. So the pros of aldosterone antagonists are that 
they're really effective in resistant hypertension. And there's a good reason for that. About 10 to 15% of people who have resistant hypertension, that is blood pressure that does not respond to our first three agents, um, have primary hyperaldosteronism. So a lot of those people are probably just getting treated by blocking that hyperaldosteronism with an aldosterone antagonist. It's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've often heard, and this I guess would support that, is that essential hypertension is not really as common as we think. Um, and it's worth digging into and, and seeing if there's a secondary cause for a lot of people's hypertension with Cox yeah. syndrome being yeah. a major one. We'll talk a lot about that in our next podcast, the clinical podcast, about when you should screen for secondary causes of hypertension. We should probably be doing it more, basically. Yeah. Um, so the other thing about aldosterone antagonists is that they're really good in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and maybe even heart failure with preserved ejection fraction as well. There's some uh, some controversy around the trial that looked at this, but um, yeah, in heart failure patients, spironolactone is probably a good thing. The mm. downsides... Much like ACE inhibitors much like ACE inhibitors. Blocking that renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system is really a great thing to do in heart failure. Mm-hmm. Um, so downsides-wise, Davor, what are the downsides of aldosterone antagonists? We heard about some of them with our pleasant pheasant hunter. Yeah, so that that would be the main one for me, would be the uh, the sex hormone side effects in men with spironolactone, yeah. uh, particularly the gynecomastia. Probably the main one should be the potential for AKI and hyperkalemia. No, that... no. Gynecomastia. <laughs> so those hyperkalemia... No one can see my kidneys. Well. No one cares <laughs> You need to really watch out for the hyperkalemia because that can be severe, significant, and cause significant um, cardiac arrhythmias. So that's, that's a significant one, particularly in heart failure patients or anyone who has an underlying, even mild degree of renal impairment. But yes, what can often be most disturbing for patients is development of gynecomastia. So it doesn't happen with aplerinone, which is expensive, but more selectively targets this receptor, um, but does happen with spironolactone. Okay, we're coming around to the final stretch. We've got two more classes of drugs to talk about. Um, so firstly, beta blockers. Um, we're now still in the, in the realm of add-on drugs. So this is another add-on drugs, beta blockers, which a lot of you might think of sort of I think when I was in med school, we were being taught the A, B, C, D of hypertension, and beta blockers was the B, but they mm. have fallen out. The that is A's. not the case anymore. Yeah. So there are some beta blockers that are still good, and they're called the vasodilating beta blockers, and they're, they're good as add-on therapy, not first-line, add-on therapy. Um, but before we get into that, let's talk about the mechanism of action, Davo. So how do beta blockers work? So they block the beta. They block the beta. So you've got beta-1 and beta-2 receptors. And if we remember back to our previous podcast, beta-1 receptors are found in the heart uh, and they increase cardiac output by increasing contractility, so increasing the amount of squeeze in the heart from beta-1 receptors. Um, And beta-2 receptors are found in the smooth muscle. So both in the lungs and in the peripheral vasculature, you have beta-2 receptors. And when you agonize them, when you stimulate beta-2, you cause vasodilation and you cause bronchodilation so that's why we use salbutamol a uh, beta agonist in people with asthma so beta blockers block both those effects so they decrease your cardiac output and they also cause well theoretically cause um, vasoconstriction but that's really only a temporary effect so really most beta blockers uh, are working on this beta one and decreasing your cardiac output so that, that would be the ones you're thinking of, like metoprolol, atenolol, bisoprolol. They're cardioselectives. They're working mainly on beta-1 receptors. Mm. However, 
there are a couple of fellas that are really good for hypertension that work not only on that, but also on they block alpha-1 receptors. So we're getting really confusing here, but alpha-1 is a receptor that is normally triggered by noradrenaline, and it causes tightening of the blood vessels, vasoconstriction. And so and the, the alpha symbol kind of looks like someone is pulling a drawstring, closing the vessel shut. Yep, that's right. So, so these vasodilating beta blockers cause alpha-1 blockade, which then causes the peripheral vasculature to open up. So just to touch on that again, you've got beta-1 receptors, which are found in the heart, and they increase cardiac output. Beta blockers block those. You've got beta-2 receptors, which are found in the smooth muscle, which when they're normally activated cause vasodilation and bronchodilation, but when they're blocked by a beta blocker, cause vasoconstriction. And lastly, you have alpha-1, which only very few beta blockers target. And alpha-1 normally causes vasoconstriction, but when you block it, causes vasodilation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hooey, that's a lot. Beta blocker is Nicely complicated. Explained. Yeah. So what's an example of a beta blocker, Davo? How do you know you're dealing with a beta blocker when you meet it in the street? So, which I often do. Uh, so anything ending in olol. I'm pretty lol. sure this is pre-internet pre age, but yeah. so made it met, easy to remember. Metoprolol, atenolol, acebutalol. Yeah, all of these are, um, <laughs> are beta blockers. Um but the vasodilating ones, and these are the ones for the purpose of hypertension that I want you to remember, are carvedilol, labetalol, and nabivalol. So carvedilol and labetalol both block the alpha receptor, like we spoke about. And nabivalol works on beta-1, but actually probably also causes nitric oxide production in the endothelium. And that's how it vasodilates. Remember, nitric oxide is a potent vasodilator. Labetalol is the one that I've seen. Um, yeah, labetalol is really is. old school. It um, it's a bit of a dirty drug in that it works on across all these receptors, and it uh, it is very good for acute management of hypertension. It's pretty rubbish Super for long term. Super fast acting, yeah, yeah, but really good for like dropping someone's um, pressure if they've had a stroke or something like that. Yeah, and you can run it as an infusion as well. Mm. Um, so the pros of beta blockers are that they're useful in heart failure patients because of all that. Beta blockers arguably the best heart failure with the reduced ejection fraction drug there is. So if you've got someone who's got that plus high blood pressure, spot on. Uh, so much like your ACE inhibitors and spironolactone in there. If you've got those three, it's good blood pressure control, good heart failure management. Yep. Um, Libetalol is good in acute high blood pressure. So like we spoke about, someone who comes in with a hypertensive crisis. Uh, Davor uses it for whatever thing that it is that he uses it for. I use, <laughs> it in people, <laughs> I use it in people who come in with aortic dissections who need to have their blood pressure reduced drastically quickly. Um, so the beta infusions I run uh, in CCU. Um, the downsides of beta blockers, they actually don't have that much of a blood pressure effect except for those vasodilating ones, and even those aren't amazing. Beta blockers increase your risk of diabetes, uh, and so that's incident diabetes. So that's an interesting one as well, particularly long-term cardiovascular patients. You're not trying to add something else onto their hypertension. You know, you're not doing them a favor. It's a low mm -hmm. risk, but it is there. Um, beta blockers are really poorly tolerated in general, is my finding. I mean, I guess some people don't mind them, but generally they cause people to be a bit fatigued and they'll stop them again without sort of telling you because they don't like taking them. They know you're going to give them a lecture. Mm. As part of that, they can also cause weight gain. And then down the more serious end of the spectrum, side effects of beta blockers, uh, they can cause AV block in those with conduction disease, so those who have heart block, and they can trigger asthma because they 
block those beta-2 receptors that normally cause bronchodilation, and then end up having severe asthma attacks. So lots of downsides to beta blockers, and that's why they've kind of fallen out of favor as a hypertension drug. I think the main one to harp on about is just how bad people feel on it. Like if someone's like fit and active, and then all of a sudden you give them a beta blocker, they will not thank you for it. Like it just really washes people out. Do you have people thank you for many drugs? <laughs> um, good question. Yeah, thrombolysis probably. Yeah, I don't think thank enough you, people. Doctor. I don't think enough people thank me for the drugs that I give them. <laughs> um, all right. We're coming around. We're coming around the home stretch here. So this is an MCQ. Um, this is a lot longer than I thought. It was going to be a short, punchy little drug podcast. Anyway, mm, uh, mm, mm. when was the last time we did a short, punchy podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Garrulous individuals. Um, Methuselah, a 72-year-old man recently diagnosed with prostatism, presents to you his cardiologist for review. You've been seeing Methuselah for hypertension for years, and you've been managing him with chlorthalidone because you've read the data. He tells you he's been feeling exceptionally dizzy since his GP prescribed him a new medication around the diagnosis of his prostatism. What might that medication be, Davil? Is it A, crystal methamphetamine, B, doxycycline, C, prazosin, or D, furosemide? I think crystal methamphetamine is the solution to the problem here, and probably the cause of the problem is prazosin. That's right. Um, the other thing so, I wanted to say is it's quite a realistic scenario. Like, if you haven't actually worked as a doctor um, and you're listening to this, you might think, you know, like, why would why would someone turn up to you and you'd have to guess what medication they're on? That wouldn't yeah, happen. Yeah, <laughs> it wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't happen in a modern medical system. That is but exactly no. what happens. <laughs> and the patient comes in and says, I started me on something. It's a blue one. It's got like a D on it somewhere. <laughs> It'd probably be worthwhile like learning the color of the different pills at some stage. You they know, all, That's what they all say. They're like round and blue. There's a cool like visual a classifier. Bullet. There's a visual classifier app that looks, you can take a photo of any tablet and it'll tell you what it is. Ah, right, cool. Very nice, yeah. Um, if you work in an emergency department, it might be more helpful for you. Um, so... Mm-hmm. Prazosin, what we're all talking about there, is an alpha antagonist, so alpha-1 antagonist. So the mechanism of action here, we spoke about alpha-1 before, is noradrenaline floods in, binds to alpha-1 receptors, and causes peripheral vasoconstriction. And so when you block that, you get peripheral vasodilation, which causes decreased blood pressure. How, Davil? Comes back to the beginning of the podcast. It's all full circle. What an artfully constructed piece of teaching you've put together but to answer your question (laughs) stop stalling um, peripheral vasodilation causes decreased cross-sectional area which is the best way of decreasing resistance which is the best way of decreasing pressure that's right and as a side action they actually also cause urethral dilation hence why in Methuselah his prostatism was helped by this uh, prazosin that his GP had prescribed and interestingly, I didn't know this until researching for this podcast, but they actually increase blood flow to skeletal muscle and thus cause higher insulin sensitivity, which would help in, say, your diabetic patients. That but all like that really aside, minor point. yeah, I would never think I've that never anyone ever that. started it for that reason. But um, <laughs> all that aside, what does an alpha agonist sound and antagonist? What does an alpha antagonist sound like when you're looking at it on a drug chart? It's your osins, so your prazosins. That's not how you say it, prazosin. Doxazosin and terazosin. I've never heard of the second two. The only one I've ever seen is prazosin. Yeah, yeah. Um, you might have heard of tamsulosin as well, which is the one often used for people who have um, have prostatism, so dutasteride, tamsulosin. 
There's one, I'm just going to mention it. We might talk about it in the next podcast. We might not. Maybe I'm just going to mention it now. But it's Maybe called phenoxybenzamine. Yeah. And it's used because it's an IV drug that you can use in pheochromocytoma. Just store that away for now. Don't worry about it, but I'm going to unlock that memory in you later. Um, so pros, what's the <laughs> pros? Inception. Yeah. <laughs> what's the uh, pros of alpha antagonist, Ivo? Uh So as you said, it's good in pheochromocytoma. Uh, which is a great mid-student condition that very few of us have actually seen. Um, but we'll talk about that uh, if Rahul does another podcast, which I hope he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very good for men with prostatism, as you mentioned, and it's useful in combination with a diuretic. That's right. So the cons, there's not much outcome data for alpha antagonists. I mean, it sounds great, but they don't actually, they're not confirmed to actually improve your cardiovascular no. outcomes very much. No. And they can also cause fluid retention, probably related to this differential in veno and arterial dilation. And so you end up with a bit of fluid retention, a little bit like calcium channel blockers. And so that can worsen an unmasked heart failure. So I don't use them very often, except for when I'm getting to sort of fourth or fifth line um, down the track. And I've got usually, uh, usually it's someone who's got renal disease and it can be quite effective. But yeah, earlier on, I'm sticking to our first line drugs. Oh man, that's it. I that think uh, the the other major con of prazosin is that it just causes people to fall over, like much more than any other antihypertensive. Like they all cause postural hypertension, but prazosin seems to do it just way more than the others. Yeah, well, I guess you lose your natural sort of vasoconstriction response to mm, changing mm, your blood mm, volume. So, mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty dangerous in, in, as well. in the elderly. Mm. So that concludes our hypertension drugs podcast. Now, can you believe we were 53 minutes and I thought there wasn't enough content in this. So just goes to show you what I know. But to um, to do a refresher, we spoke about our first line drugs for hypertension, which were, Darvel? Ace inhibitor slash ARP, calcium channel blockers, and thiazide-like diuretics. That's right. And then we spoke about some add-ons, which in order were sort of spironolactone uh, and aldosterone antagonists beta blockers, and alpha antagonists. And they're really your second line that you reach for when you've got someone who's finding themselves quite resistant to two or three of the first-line drugs. Um, we also spoke about how com- combination therapy is super helpful in hypertension, particularly with these first-line drugs. And some societies advocate for starting people on two drugs straight away if they're at a particularly high blood pressure. And we'll talk about that in the next podcast now that we have this grounding of, of understanding these drugs and their mechanisms. And lastly, I want to say just always tie it back to those initial mechanisms of hypertension. So cardiac output or vascular resistance, in some way it's going to tie to one of those things, um, whether it's from blood Mm. volume and sodium or vasodilation or because of uh, contractility and and heart rate. Mm -mm. Anything you want to add on at the end there, Dava? Clothalidone, hey? Who knew? Yeah, it's the big one. It's the big one. Um, Get on our Facebook page, toss us a like. Uh, yeah, we love to see it. And give us a review on iTunes if you enjoy listening to the show. And we'll catch you next time, in maybe in the next 12 months, for Hypertension Part 3. Hopefully. Thanks, Rahul. Yeah. No, bye.